This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me this week is Danny Hewson. Hi Dan, it has been a rather busy week and of course the big story is all about care, how to pay for it. The government plans to add 1.25% to national insurance contributions and dividend tax will also be increased by the same amount. Tom Selby is with us to crunch those numbers. Hi, Danny. Yeah, 12 billion is the amount the government reckons the levy will raise with the aim to cap care costs for everyone at £86,000, which should help ensure people don't face catastrophic care costs, as the Prime Minister put it. But there's plenty of opposition with young people still expected to bear the brunt of these costs and questions about whether the money raised will be anywhere near enough to deal with the problem. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I know we'll also talk to you about the uh, the government's decision to scrap the pension triple lock for one year later on in the show. And I'll be assessing what's been going on with US markets and why the latest disappointing jobs figures actually helped to steady the ship. And while you're talking ships, I know that you've been hearing how some UK companies are preparing to deal with supply chain shipping issues. And as the new school year begins and many people return to their offices for the first time in months, I've been chatting to Joe Owen, author of Smart Work, about what the future holds. And Laura Souter will be talking to Andrew Hebden from the Bank of England about why they drafted in the Beano to help teach kids about finance. Well, this week definitely didn't give us a nice slow slide back into work. I know I'd been hoping for it. And in fact, I paid my first visit to the office on Tuesday, expecting some long chats by the kettle, cups of tea. Instead, no, heads down, fingers rattling over keyboards. Tom, I don't think your fingers actually stopped hitting those keyboards for about three hours. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, Danny. It really wasn't the sociable introduction that I was hoping for. It was a, it was a crazily busy day and became something of a, a mini budget, didn't it? Perhaps Boris Johnson came back from his summer holes with a new sense of vigour. Um, he was certainly keen to seize the political initiative. And although... The announcements made this week are more than a little controversial and there was a sense a few of the measures were slightly rushed as well with some last minute introductions, I think, shall we say. And we've also got a date for the budget. So I think we're going to be extremely busy between now and November. There's been so much coverage of these government plans, not least because they break a manifesto promise. But after the last 18 months, the Prime Minister said he believes the public will understand the need to make changes to protect and maintain the NHS and to get grip with long-term issue of how to fund social care. So before we get into how this is going to affect our budgets, Tom, take us through what the government has proposed. So they're going to introduce what they call a health and social care levy. So what this really means is an increase in national insurance rates, as we said at the top of the programme. So they'll be paid by employers, employees and the self-employed. So in 2022, 23, the government will simply add 1.25% to the NI that is paid at basic and higher rates. And then in the following tax year, you'll see a health and social care levy appear separately on your wage slip, but it will have the same impact on your take-home pay. So as things stand, you pay 12% on national insurance on earnings between just over £9,500 and just over £50,000 a year, and then 2% on earnings above 
that. So for 2022-23, those two rates will go up by 1.25%. And we'll see the same thing happening to the self-employed as well. So what's known as class four uh, national insurance rates rates that apply to self-employed profits. So they'll, they'll go up by 1.25% as well. So that's that's a, that'll go up from 9% on profits between just over £9,500 and just over £50,000. And then it will go up from 2% on profits above that. So the first thing that you'll see will be an increase in national insurance next year. And then the second thing you'll see will be this separate separated out thing on your payslip that will say a health and social care levy, but it will amount to the same thing. In terms of the impact that's going to have on people. So the government estimates if you earn £30,000, you'll be paying £255 more a year from April. And for someone earning 50 grand, that goes up to an extra £505 a year. However, the Resolution Foundation, a think tank, a very well-respected think tank, calculates a typical 25-year-old today will pay an extra £12,600 over their working lives from the employee part of the tax hike alone compared to almost nothing for pensioners because of course at the moment pensions are, pensioners aren't subject to national insurance on their earned income they will be subject to national insurance on their earned income under these proposals but of course most pensioners get their income from their retirement pots and from the state pension and neither of those will be subject to national insurance or this new health and social care levy It's not the only hike, though, because there's also going to be a similar hike in dividend tax. Take us through what that means and what people should be thinking about. Yeah, this this was a bit that felt a little last minute to me. So the government's clearly keen to show that the wealthy, in inverted commas, are going to bear the load for these social care reforms and this extra NHS spending as well as working people. So if you pay yourself in dividends or receive dividends from investments outside tax wrappers where they're worth more than £2,000, you pay dividend tax. So there are three different rates that people can pay. So at the moment, they're set at 7.5% if the dividend's within the basic rate tax band, 32.5% for the higher rate tax band, and 38.1% for the additional rate tax ban. Now, they're already not exactly the catchiest rates, and they're going to get a little less catchy as well, because you'll have to add 1.25% to each of those rates to get the the new dividend dividend tax rates that are going to apply from the next tax year. So investors and the self-employed collectively are going to pay £600 million more in tax, the government reckons, as a result of the move. However, it's probably going to be company directors who pay themselves in dividends, including the self-employed and contractors, who are going to be hit hardest by this. Um, If we look at a couple of numbers, so it will mean that anyone taking home more than £2,000 a year, as I said, dividends will now face a slightly higher tax bill. So if you take £10,000 of dividends, this will equate to £100 a year more in dividend tax under the reformed rates, uh, regardless of your tax bracket, while at £20,000 a year, it means an extra cost of £225. Now, in terms of the impact on retail investors, and I'm sure that's something that a lot of our listeners will be thinking about, you'll you'll only be impacted if you have significant portfolios outside of a pension or an ISA, what we call tax wrappers, because Pensions and ISAs are shielded from dividend tax as well as other taxes, and that will continue to be the case. Um, So if you have money outside of tax wrappers at the moment, then 
it's probably worth having a little look at your portfolio, having a little think about whether you want to continue to hold that money outside of pensions and ISAs, because it might be worth your while having a look again and perhaps putting some more money into pensions and ISAs and making making the most of the tax-free allowances that you get every year. So I know we're talking about extra tax to help go towards care, but actually for the first three years, a huge chunk of this money will actually go towards helping the NHS deal with the backlog of cases caused by COVID, which has caused many people to ask, actually, is it enough money? Yeah, that's that, that's right, Dan. So the measures taken together are expected to rake in £12 billion a year. The vast majority of that's coming from the, the national insurance increase, so the health and social care levy. Uh, but a big t- chunk of that £12 billion a year, as you say, is going to go straight into the NHS. So for the first three years, just £5.4 billion will go towards changing the social care system. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but in terms of government spending and in terms of the scale of the challenge, it really isn't a huge amount. It's actually caused quite a lot of anger in some quarters but among people who've been calling for reform to the social care system, and many think it almost certainly won't be enough to deal with the problem, and in particular to fund Boris Johnson's big pledge, which was to, of course, cap social care costs at £86,000 over someone's lifetime. And the devil, in this, as always, is in the detail. There are quite a lot of calls for clarity today about exactly what's included in that. You know, does it just cover care or does it cover other fundamental costs like accommodation and food? Because if it doesn't, then those bills could still rack up. People might not be expecting that and they might still need to sell assets like their home anyway. Yeah, so as you are, you're right, the devil is always in the detail and we don't have a huge amount of detail yet on how this cap is going to apply or what's going to be included. However, I suspect, so these, these proposals are based on some reforms that were brought forward by someone called Andrew Dillnot, the best part of a, a decade ago. And when he put forward the idea of a cap on care costs, he proposed having one that didn't include things like hotel costs, so food and accommodation, but but a cap that just just covers the costs of the personal care that you need in in older age if you do need that care so we're still waiting for detail on exactly how it's these plans are going to be taken forward but i would expect that things like hotel costs won't be included as you say they can be very significant so that's something that people are going to continue to have to think about and i suspect the government will be hoping that by putting a cap on care costs that in the insurance market around long-term care will will develop and there'll be more products out there for people to buy. But it's very much a, a wait and see both in terms of how this is going to work practically and the impact it's going to have on the insurance market as well. So I know we spoke earlier about the young having to bear the brunt of these costs. That might have something to do with the timing of another announcement from the government about the pension triple lock, which is going to be scrapped, but only for a year. So yes, that's right, Dan. So the, the state pension triple lock, as a, as a reminder, something we've spoken about a few times before, um, increases the, the value of both the basic state pension and the flat rate state pension by the highest of average earnings, inflation, or 2.5%. Now, that was going to present a particular problem to the government this year because we're expecting earnings to rise significantly. The government expecting a, a rise in earnings for the three months to July, possibly of 8% or more as a result of the opening up of society. And of course, last year we saw earnings were pushed down during during lockdown, something that government, the government has suggested was an, an artificial drop in average earnings. So they've decided 
to remove the earnings part of the triple lock just for this year, and then it will return the year after. So that means the, 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 the state pension will increase by the highest of inflation or 2.5%. It's, it's usually the inflation number for September that the government uses for the triple lock. So we'll have to wait to see what that number comes in at to find out exactly how much people's state pensions are going to go up by. So a bit of a blow to pensioners, although they will still see an increase in their income this year. But also, of course, a second manifesto pledge broken on the same day, which I think in my time, certainly covering this is a first. Thanks, Tom. And I know that you're going to be back next week with our Pensions Corner. So if any of you have a question for Tom, do email it over podcast at hbell.co.uk. Okay, time to take our regular look at what's been going on with markets. And it has been pretty gloomy, both sides of the Atlantic. But last Friday's rather surprising and disappointing jobs figures didn't do as much damage as some people were fearing, Dan. Yeah, so we, you know, we had these non-farm payroll growth numbers. They were forecast to show 735,000 uh, jobs in in August, but actually what the figures showed was 235,000. So a gigantic miss. Um, you know, one might initially have thought, you know, that's terrible news. You know, the, the, the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, has been buying lots of bonds as part of its economic support measures. But um, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, said he wouldn't start tapering bond purchases until the jobs numbers look better. So the fact that we have this big jobs miss for August would suggest there's going to be no tapering by the central bank for a while. Now, that is why markets didn't sink on the numbers. It's kind of, they think, okay, the economic support is still going to be there, which should be positive for equities. However, as we've gone into the new week, markets are looking a bit gloomy. Investors seem to be a bit worried about slowing economic growth and the ongoing inflationary pressures. Of course, that adds up to the dreaded stagflation scenario. But there is perhaps one exception. Uh, if you look at over um, sort of a couple of weeks' basis, is, is Japanese stocks, where the Prime Minister, Yoshihide Suga, said he's not going to stand for re-election. Now, that has gone down incredibly well with investors. So he is not liked in Japan. There's been lots of delays with the rollout of the vaccine. And so the, the news that, that Japan is going to have a new Prime Minister very soon um, essentially pushed investors towards buying lots of Japanese shares. And therefore, if you are a UK investor with Japan-focused investment trusts, funds, or ETF you should have seen pretty much across the boards some decent performance. Well, UK markets did manage to shake off some of that malaise on Monday only while US investors enjoyed the Labor Day holiday. But then it all seemed to go downhill. We've got concern, obviously, from investors about how the new levy that we've been talking about earlier is going to shake down, how that might impact businesses, particularly when they're trying to get back on their feet, what extra cost pressures might mean for them maybe thinking about expanding, maybe taking on more staff. But there's also been more worrying news, perversely, about labour shortages and supply chain snarl-ups impacting the ability of some sectors to maintain that reopening momentum, which, of course, has been so important. Let's start with staffing because, uh, sorry, start with staffing because the CBI chose this week to issue a warning that labour shortages could last for at least two years unless the government introduces a more flexible policy on immigration. Now, 
you know, we heard when furlough was first introduced about the potential for huge uh, unemployment around 10%. And despite the fact that we've got the end of furlough hurtling towards us right now, it, it just doesn't look like many of those that, that are still on the scheme uh, it looks like they will have a job to go back to. And that, of course, means that all those vacancies which are going unfilled, well, they're not going to have people jumping off furlough and jumping into those vacancies. So it's having a massive knock-on for businesses. The fruit farmers telling the public to come in and pick what they want for free because they don't want fruit to rot on trees. You've got the care sector. We spoke so much about that earlier today, saying that one of the biggest issues they face is, is they simply can't find the number of staff that they need to do the job. And lorry drivers, you know, we've spoken about this before. Businesses are resorting to all kinds of tactics to try and recruit more lorry drivers cash incentives to jump from one company to another, pay for staff to get trained up or switching to smaller vans. And the construction sector as well is crying out for bricklayers. Brexit has bitten. Yes, of course, this situation has absolutely been exacerbated by the pandemic, but lots of workers have left the country. They've gone home and they've left big gaps. And there's a question about how those gaps can be filled do we need to look at retraining? Do we need to look at flexible working options, better pay to tempt back people into the labour market? Or do we have to make it easier for businesses to bring workers that they need in from outside the UK if their businesses are going to keep ticking over? It's a conundrum. And of course, if that wasn't enough, businesses are also having to deal with this perfect storm. You've got staffing shortages on the one hand and then massive gaps in the supply chain on the other hand, I don't know, Dan, have you noticed gaps on supermarket shelves? Because I have. Um, I don't like shopping at the best of times, so <laughs> I try and avoid shops where possible. So I'm glad to say that I, I haven't noticed because I haven't been there. But, you know, I've seen pictures on social media and supermarket stuff. But I, I know when I do my I do online grocery shop, um, increasingly every week, there's something that's just not there. More and more things missing, really. You know, and I, I was even reading about... Um, you know, Biffa, the, the waste collection company, if you want your bins collected every other week, well, they're talking about shortage of drivers. So now this is, you know, I guess if you go to a shop, you could have a choice to buy something else. But when we've got essential services being affected, you know, this is it's going to get ugly, really, isn't it? So. Yeah. And I know that lots of companies are, are warning about this, including two this week, Dan. Yeah, well, we had just had some numbers out from Dunelm and Halfords, both of them talking about supply chain pressures. Both are upbeat. But if you look at all the details, I'd say that Halford looks the vulnerable of the two. You know, Dunelm is sort of homeware, so it could be picture frames and pillows and stuff. Um, and it's aimed at sort of the more value end of the market. It had a superb 2020. And of course, that, that saw all of its stocks being run down in its warehouses. So this year, it's been trying to build those stockpiles back up. And management is sort of making this big point that they're, they're really looking at stock levels to ensure that they can meet customer demand and also trying to mitigate these cost pressures from raw materials and freight costs and driver shortages, which are seen across this industry. But if you look at Halfords, 
it's got some pretty horrible numbers on its cycling side because you know it, there just aren't these bikes that are available. We're all queuing up. You know, ever since lockdown first began, everyone's sort of thinking, okay, I'm going to try and become more active in my life, and the demand for bikes has gone through the roof, and it's still there now. But Halfords is saying, unless you want a kid's bike or you want to dig deep and buy an electric bike, really don't have much. And I think. Now, this is a problem for the business. It's talking about having to focus on service activity to drive earnings. But, you know, I just think it shows how there's a business here, massive demand, but it just can't capitalise on this opportunity. Yeah, a massive hurdle to climb on the way to get back to normal for these businesses. Uh, And things like, you know, the, the chip shortages, which... You know, we were hearing earlier in the year, the boss of Ford saying they expected things to be starting to get back to normal by the time we got to past the summer. Well, it's September and they're still causing havoc. And you've also got rising shipping costs as well, which will obviously have a knock on to price. Um, but normal is, is something that we've had a bit of a taste of this week. Uh, and for a lot of people, it's been their first really big dose because schools have gone back uh, in England and so have office workers. In fact, Transport for London said on Monday it was their busiest day on the tube for commuters since before the pandemic. But how many days will people actually be in the office for? Have we swapped remote working for hybrid working? And what challenges does that bring to workers, to businesses and to investors? Well, Joe Owens, the author of a new book called Smart Work, which looks at what's changed over the last 18 months, what's here to stay and what are the potential pitfalls. I caught up with him earlier this week and asked him what he made of the last 18 months of upheaval. If you think back to before the pandemic, we were all patting ourselves on the back, saying how fast we were changing to the digital economy. And we're talking about internet and the web and all this kind of good stuff. And then the pandemic came along. And it was like the last 20 years had been a walk in the park because overnight, most firms achieved more change faster than they had ever done before. They, they literally revolutionized the way they worked. Uh, organizations which uh, previously had believed that working from home was actually shirking from home, um, overnight suddenly discovered that actually you could not only work from home, but in in some ways it could even be better than working uh, in the office. So that was a complete revolution. And I'm reminded of Lenin's uh, aphorism that there are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. Well, at the start of the pandemic, there was a weekend when decades happen. So we've discovered how much change firms can really achieve. And I think this raises a huge challenge for leadership and management now, because if that's the level of change that we can achieve, what other changes should we be achieving now? What other deep assumptions do we have about work that we should be challenging that we aren't challenging. Because the temptation now is to go, you know, go back to the comfort zone of nice incremental change. Well, comfort zones pretty quickly become uncomfortable uh, if the rest of the world is changing much faster than you. So there's a huge challenge of change that made all the more acute because although we now know how fast firms can change, the reality is but I think a lot of team members are feeling a little bit of change burnout 
so and they probably want to uh, sort of rest and go back into their comfort zones a little bit so you've you've got a huge challenge right there i don't think anybody expects that we will revert to where we were i think if you look at um all of the correspondence that's coming out of the different companies they're all talking about some kind of hybrid way of working so how do businesses put into practice the good stuff that they've learned and not create problems particularly for their workforce when people work remotely you've got a great opportunity to be much more flexible which incidentally is uh, much better for diversity and uh, families and all that kind of good stuff but you can't just stumble into flexibility because inevitably you know, one, one person's flexibility is another person's inconvenience and they get very upset. So you, you, as a team, you can't assume you're going to discover these new rules for remote working. You have to design them quite, quite consciously, purposefully and deliberately. Yeah, that's where you need very clear rules of the game about when people are going to be in the office and when they're not. A free-for-all is actually going to uh, land everyone up in trouble. But there will be some who would prefer to be in the office nine to five, and therefore they will be adversely affected if you say that our core office hours are 10 to three. Well, precisely. So that's where you've got to work out common rules now. Um, the common rules can can mean different rules for different people. So, for instance, what we're seeing is that young people, sort of new graduates, people who are new to a firm, want to be in the office near nearly all the time, and that's a smart decision because if you're new to a firm, you don't know how things work, and you don't have those networks of trust and influence that enable you to make things happen. Okay. Whereas if you're an old lag who's been around the firm forever, you've got all those networks of trust and influence and you can work remotely. So that's where you need very clear rules of the game, where you, you probably do allow um, newer employees and the younger generation to be in sort of near a full time. But then you've got to force the old lags to be in you know, one, two or three days a week and you've got to negotiate that. Then within each team, Again, you're going to have exactly that challenge. There will be some people who want to have core, out, core hours of 10 to 3 when everyone's available for meetings. And other people saying, no, I, I want to be able to have meetings at you know, 9 o'clock at night uh, or whatever it is. Well, that's something you've got to resolve as a team. And the team leader is really important there. Because if, the te- yeah, if as a team you agree, oh, we'll do you know, 10 to 3, but whatever it is, other times when you're available to answer emails and then the team leader breaks that rule because of an emergency then that's it the rules are over okay so the team leader has has to role model the right behaviors but you've got to agree those rules as a team if businesses don't do this do they risk then losing the best people will those people seek out businesses where they have the best rules, where they have the best blueprint for hybrid working? 
Well, I think this is going to be one of the really interesting things to see as we go, go forwards. And we're already seeing employers take different lines. So uh, typically consulting firms are being very flexible. Uh, a lot of the uh, investment banking firms are being very inflexible and saying, get into the office unless you're a complete wimp and if you're a wimp, you don't belong here sort of thing. Um, so here's what I think is going to happen. Um, there is a war for talent going on. And in the short term, the firms which insist on everyone coming in will win the battle because yeah, they can mandate that everyone has to come in. And you know, if that's what the employer insists on, that is what the employer will get. They will win the battle. They may sweeten it by saying you can have free meals and free yoga lessons and all that sort of stuff, but the rules are rules and they can win the battle. The big question is then what happens not to the battle, but to the war, which is what you were referring to. And my guess is that, again, over a five year period, um, first of all, people, when they switch firms or uh, they're they new to the market and they're joining a firm, they will, will probably choose the firm which meets their personal needs best. And part of those personal needs will undoubtedly be, you know, are they flexible? in terms of uh, uh, work, working life. So I think that's one to watch over the next five years. I think yeah, the, the back to the office firms will win the battle. I think they may lose the war. And when they start losing the war, they will change their tune. Do you think it will also impact pay? Because we have seen some companies discussing paying less to people who work from home so at the moment, we know all about London waiting. If you live and work in London, people expect to be paid more. But if you decide not to go into the office in Leeds, you're not paying for commuting. Do you think people will either accept being paid less or do you think companies will go down that route? I, I, I suspect, again, we're going to see a variety of practices. I think we are going to start seeing differential pay. Um, in my previous book on global teams, which I imaginatively called global teams. Um, I was already seeing that firms take that approach of they pay for the job, they don't pay for where you work. And this was in particular true for smaller firms. So there was, you know, I'm thinking one smaller firm in the IT sector. And they said, we don't care where you work. You can work in the middle of San Francisco or you can be on a beach in Bali. We don't care. We pay you for the job. So, yeah, and we'll pay you the same wherever you are, which gives an in interesting incentive to make a decision about where you want to live. So that's the other way of looking. You just say, we pay for the job and that's the rate, okay? Um, then the other way is to say, well, uh, which is what essentially a lot of the outsourcing firms do. Uh, they'll say, well, if we can get all this uh, IT work done in Bangalore for you know, a quarter of the cost it'll, it'll take in, in Britain, they'll outsource it to Bangalore. So this is, I think, one of the risks of this new world of remote working, that if your work is genuinely fully remote, fully remote, then, uh, why should it be done in London or in Bradford or why not in Bangalore? Okay. At which point you find you're no longer competing 
against other smart graduates uh, from the UK, but you're competing from very smart people uh, in Bangalore who are prepared to work very long hours at, at very low costs. And that's a very uncomfortable position uh, to be in. So if you're an employee, I would suggest that fully remote working should be a bit of a warning sign to you. If you have to have to be in the office for two or three days a week, that's actually good news because that implies that your work does demand face-to-face -face contact with uh, other team members, uh, with other staff members, with suppliers, with customers. And that's much harder to outsource halfway across the world. So you're probably likely to be a bit safer. So hybrid working, you're probably okay. Remote working, I think you need to think very carefully about uh, how, how secure your job is in the long term. So we're talking about the world and work, but these changes are creating a huge societal change, which is going to impact the way our city centres look, the way our transport hubs are operated, where we decide to live, when we decide to have kids, and whether or not we need to pay for things like childcare. This is going to, well, it's thrown everything up in the air and we're just waiting to see where it all lands. Yeah, we are. And, and I, yeah, I, I personally think that's incredibly exciting. Um, yeah, I, I'm not an expert on, on society and politics and all that, although I suspect that um, this uh, rem move to remote working may be the biggest shift towards uh, the levelling up agenda that uh, can be imagined. So, yeah, that, that, that's great. But where it lands up, in terms of city centres, work-life balance, etc. Nobody knows yet. But that is a big message. Because right now, right now, even as we are speaking, there are people creating firms, creating propositions for this new world, uh, which are going to be huge successes. They're going to make fortunes out of it. And in five years' time, 10 years' time, we're going to say, well, that was obvious, wasn't it? That was so obvious. Well, it may be obvious in five years, 10 years time. It's not obvious at the moment. But if you think it's obvious, if you can see what that new value proposition is, what that new opportunity is to exploit this new world, then go for it. Because this, you know, this is the time of great change and great opportunity for entrepreneurs. And of course, for investors, there is an opportunity if they're thinking about how these changes are going to impact not only traditional companies, but also those companies of the future that you're talking about. It's an exciting time. No, I, I, I think it's really exciting. So, you know, just as the digital economy gave rise to you know, a whole host of new opportunities um, in, in investment terms, and yeah, we all know what those, those are. I, I think the new world of remote work, uh, coupled with the digital economy, obviously, gives rise to massive new investment opportunities. I, I mean, being able to spot those investments, well, you know, that, that's a real skill and that's a real talent, and good luck to you if you can do that. Joe Owen there, absolutely 
fascinating man. And his book, Smart Work, will be published by Bloomsbury on Friday, the 17th of September. Now, I certainly know I've not quite got back into that routine of getting back into the office yet. I'm still working mostly from home. But, you know, one thing I'm constantly seeing, and it's still just getting worse, is the amount of text messages I'm getting about scams, which would be you know, pretending that you know, we tried to deliver a parcel to you. We weren't there here, pay two, three pounds via this sort of link, which is actually not linked with post office or a courier company it's a scam mm. i've also seen things like you know you haven't paid your tax bill you don't you get those phone calls all the time saying we're <laughs> going to take you to prison and um, i get those and they can be quite scary when yeah. you first hear them because it's like you are in trouble you are going to go <laughs> to prison if you don't respond to this message and you're like okay yeah, yeah so I, I thought you know i thought this is just getting annoying but i know how to cope with it but then I, you know, a couple of days ago i had a phone call and it, someone said oh this is um bt open reach you've got problems with the internet and of course lo and behold I'd, I'd just gone through a couple of days of really bad patch with my wi-fi so i thought okay you know, well, this is quite good they're on the ball um and they started to talk me through things like say we're gonna we're gonna help fix this we think it's um someone's trying to hack your your sort of router and ip address and stuff so um, and they were doing it very calmly. And as I was listening to what they were doing, and they said, okay, got to the point where you go onto the internet. Could you, could you download this remote uh, working software so we can connect to you? And I thought, that sounds a bit weird. <laughs> I'm sure BT don't normally connect that way. Um, and I sort of said to them, like, well, before I do anything, how do I know that you're BT? And they were saying, oh, you know, we are, you know, we're trying to help you and stuff. So I sort of said, but you haven't asked me any security questions. And I sort of then went, you know, what is my name? Because you've called me, tell me who I am, and then I'll talk to you sort of thing. And so this person then sort of said, oh, the problem on your line is so serious. We'll do security after you've downloaded this software. <laughs> I thought that sounds, <laughs> that sounds really yeah, dodgy. Alarm bells ringing, yeah. Yeah, so I sort of said, I said, look, you know, this, is, this is no good. Um, I just don't... I, I've been here before. I've, I've talked about this with banks before when they've called me and they've always said, oh, that's fine. We understand you. Um, like we'll send you something, a, a message on the app and then you can call us back or something and double check. And so this, at this point they said, oh, you know, um, they, I sort of hung up on them and said, like, I can't talk to you. Not you know, If this is where you're going to do business, uh, unless you're going to take me to security, I'm not talking to you. And then two seconds later, someone else coming back said, oh, oh I'm the manager of BT. I understand you have some problems, but believe me, you, you know, this is us. And I sort of ran the same three things to him, saying like, um, you, know, "You know, this all sounds very dodgy. I'm not downloading anything." Anyway, after a while, he got bored of listening to me and hung up on me. So <laughs> um, it goes to show you got to be so so careful these days. I mean, there must be hundreds of people out there sort of thinking, "I've got I've got internet problems. This is normal." But um, I dread to think if that if I downloaded this software, and you know, they could have taken control of my computer and oh, God knows what. So you know, just you know, please, please, listeners, keep on your toes about these other things. Um, I had a similar situation when I was in London, and I've no idea whether or not it was my mobile phone provider calling me or not, because I'd had a text message saying that I was running out of data and to go to their website and the, the website was offline and then about 20 minutes later I was in Madame Tussauds and I got this phone call and it was somebody with a number which is based in my hometown so it was uh, you know a, a code for Huddersfield and they were saying well we can add some extra data but we need to take payment for that <laughs> and anyway I wasn't prepared to give card details while I was in the middle of the no. crowd but <laughs> no. it's so easy isn't it you think oh yeah I yeah. need extra data I'll sort that out 
yeah, absolutely. you're right. But uh, being financially savvy, it, it's something that we all need to learn. And the more you learn when you're a kid, the better. And I've loved the fact that my children have not been here today. They've been back at school. But just because the teachers are in charge, of course, it doesn't mean that there's still not a lot of work that we can do to help with children's education. And particularly when it comes to understanding about things like scams and money and finance. Yeah, to help with this, the Bank of England has teamed up with children's comic favourite, Beano. And Laura Souter has been chatting to Andrew Hebden about how the project came about. So there's a lot of talk about doing more to educate children on finance. But what is it that the Bank of England's done with this tie up with Beano? So the Bank of England has been active in sort of education for a number of years um, and we've had a, a, a variety of different programs to work in this in this space all around sort of financial education and what we would class as sort of broader economic education so um, trying to deepen an understanding amongst young people about the economy and the Bank of England's role within it. The uh, Collaboration with the Beano um, came about as part of a, an effort on our behalf to provide something new and interesting, uh, particularly for primary school children, um, that um, gives them a really good grounding in the, um, the role of money, banks and the financial system as an introduction to, um, to financial education. And we were looking for uh, partners to work with to help us to uh, to engage kids in a in a in a new and innovative way. So um, so we had conversations with a number of organisations, and and Bino were, uh, were were one of those we talked to. And from the outset, I think um, we were really excited about a kind of tie up between what is traditionally seen as, I guess, quite a, a sort of austere and um, long established institution like the Bank of England and. Uh, a long, a long-established brand like Beano, but one that is obviously quite different in terms of its uh, appeal and reputation. So, so we had some great conversations with them, and um, I think we struck it off um, quite quickly in terms of what we were looking to achieve through this through this project, and really to be able to reach um, children in a in a different way using the kind of fun. Uh, fun side of the Beano and and hopefully the sort of rigour, if you like, of the Bank of England sort of reputation in 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 what we do. Um, and the third partner in this was was uh, Tez, um, which is the platform used by um, teachers um, to access different teaching resources. And having them on board as well gave us a really strong, I think, trio of organisations that could could develop something that we think is quite fun, but also unique and, and stimulating and um, accessible um, for, for children. So are the resources intended to be used by teachers or are they for parents at home? Um, how, how will kids access them? So both. So we initially set this up as a teacher resource um, and that's been fantastically successful. We've had over uh, 100,000 downloads by teachers uh, in the sort of year or so since we went live with the original resource. But then um, obviously recognising the uh, challenges brought about by the pandemic and the move to homeschooling, we recognised that actually there was a, an opportunity here to revise the uh, resources and make them more accessible to a non-teacher, non-professional teacher 
audience. So we launched um, a home learning um, version of the Beano um, uh, resource, which uh, which went live earlier this year. Um, and the idea of that there is to make it really accessible to any parent who 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 would like to access it through our website. And um, again, we've had some terrific feedback um, from from parents who've been using it. Yeah, what has the feedback been from parents? Because um, I had a quick look through them and um, they're so interesting and engaging. But also, I think some of the stuff that they're covering, lots of parents wouldn't have covered in school. And um, I mean, you'd hope that they'd know that now, but some might not. Yeah, so, so I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's probably a, a fair a fair a fair point and um and we, we recognize that obviously you know parents will come to this from uh different backgrounds with, with different levels of knowledge um and you know it may be that some of the some of the elements of the resource um will not um be be suited to everyone um but we've tried to respond to the feedback that we've got which has been has been really positive overall um and and we will continue to sort of evaluate and and um and change the resources if if um, if we feel that's that's necessary. But as I say, hope, hopefully there's something there that that um, both parents and the young people can can get something from. And worst case scenario, I guess they can just learn alongside each other, learn together. Well, well, you know that's I mean that's a really important part of this. And you know, financial education is is definitely a lifelong uh, learning thing. And actually, you know, if you look at the research, um, uh, the latest Young Person's Money Index, which came out this year. Um, uh, 75% of young people interviewed in that age 15 to 18 said that they actually get got most of their financial understanding from their parents, which, you know, is is great on one level that, that, that parents are sort of such an important source of information. But, you know, as we know, sort of... Um, uh, when, you know, most parents would probably not be that confident in their own knowledge on this area. So, you know, if, if kids and parents can learn alongside each other, then that has to be a, a double win and certainly something that we at Bank of England would be really pleased if that was one of the outcomes. So it's interesting that the Bank of England is putting resources and time behind this project. Why is it kind of prioritising teaching financial literacy among children? It doesn't seem in the kind of usual remit of the Bank of England. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. I think it's something that we've obviously given a lot of thought to over the years. Um, we we feel, though, that at the end of the day, the Bank of England does have a responsibility in this space. Um, ultimately, you know, people will make better decisions as, as, as adults um, about the economy and about their own financial matters if they if they understand these things. Um, and while there is other resources out there, that uh, attempt to address this challenge, um, we think that the bank has a um, has a, a useful contribution to make, especially at um, especially at those younger age groups. Um, the um, the other resources out there are excellent, and we certainly don't uh, we, you know we're not really sort of trying to sort of compete with them as such. But what we have heard from from teachers in particular is the fact that the Bank of England is a you know, public institution rather than a commercial institution. Um, just, I think it is a, you know, makes them a little bit more confident about 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 using some of our resources, and I think that has helped um, helped them be so successful that people feel, you know, it's a it's a name that obviously carries some weight and uh, that people can trust. So, so we think if if teachers are giving us that feedback, then you know, we think that there is a, a useful role for us to play. 
And I guess finally, uh, do you have any other kind of tips for what parents can do at home to help teach children about money? Yeah, uh, um, I mean, I'm no expert, so I, I, I'll be the first to confess that. I mean, I think, you know, um, talking about money um, and talking about these the issues around money um, is just good. Um, as I said earlier, you know, the evidence suggests that most young people at the moment get most of what they know um, about money from, from their parents. So um, just having those conversations um, and learning together, as you said earlier, is is a, is actually um, a really really uh, interesting and, and uh, great opportunity to to sort of benefit both both parents and and their children. So um, I think starting from a young age, um, using the resources that are available out there to help stimulate some of those conversations um, and getting young people thinking about these issues. Um, and, you know, there's obviously lots of interesting practical stuff that you can do around things like pocket money and budgeting and, uh, the, you know, whatever age there is, there's always, you know, as we all know, there's always a kind of financial aspect to to our lives seemingly from you know very, very uh, young age indeed. So I think, you know, any way you can get children thinking about money and just engaging with the topic at an early age is is, is good. And if, you know, if the Bank of England resources or indeed other resources out there can help with those conversations and give parents some ideas about how you can begin to address these of these topics, then then hopefully that's a good thing. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us today. Brilliant stuff. Were you a Beano reader, Dan? I certainly was. You know, I know my youngest daughter still gets the odd edition of the comic as well now. So, uh, yeah, it's always a, yeah, a firm favourite and it, it's good to see um, any steps being taken to try and educate children about money. So that's all for this week. Next week, Laura and Danny in the hot seat. Tom Selby will also be back with his pension corner. And we will have another money madness from the award-winning Jenny Owen. Congratulations to her. We were celebrating her last night at the Headline Money Awards. And congratulations, too, to our five lucky winners who emailed in for a chance to win an audible copy of Andy Bell's book, The DIY Investor. We have emailed out those codes to our five winners. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.